Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Well, most of you need no introduction to uh, John. John Goings is one of our elders here at the church, and uh, he's going to bring God's word for us this morning. Thank you, sir. Real quick, is that a competition that we'll be having next week? Huh? All right. Well, good morning. (laughs) I love being with God's people each and every week, and I I am just privileged and honored to be able to share with you this morning from God's word. Um, As some of you know, and maybe some of you don't, we've been in a sermon series this summer uh, called Conversion, and we are spending our time uh, going through the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel, chapters 5 through 7. And we began this last summer as we talked about the Beatitudes and the verses that immediately followed those, and we've moved into this second section of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, a couple weeks ago, uh, Lane began our sermon series this, this uh, summer, and he kind of laid the foundation for what we're going to be chatting about. Uh, he talked about Jesus is our righteousness through conversion so that we can live and believe in him. And then last week, Brandon kind of built on that as he talked about righteous and unrighteous anger and murder. And so... Let's look at our text this morning. We're in the book of Matthew, chapter 5, and we'll start in verses 27 through 30. You have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell." I'd like to just open up in a a quick word of prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you how your word brings life to us. Lord God, we thank you for just the opportunity to to get together, to gather as your body, to sing, sing your praises, Lord God, and to hear from your word. And I pray, Lord God, that you would be with us this morning, that you would be honored in our time, and that our time together would be an a blessing and an encouragement to us, Lord. Thank you for your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
So yes, uh, we are in a sermon series called Conversion. And a couple weeks ago, we went through verses 17 through 20, where Jesus kind of really sets the groundwork for this section of the Sermon on the Mount. There's kind of a bookend. We see how he references the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees to begin this part of the sermon. And then at the end, we see the reaction of the crowd saying that Jesus is one who teaches with authority. And they're kind of blown away by what Jesus has done. And so Jesus tells us that the scribes and Pharisees were guilty of relaxing or not fully teaching the law of God and obedience to the law of God. The the law and the prophets is what it says. They kind of wanted the law to be free parking. Anyone played Monopoly? That's kind of one of those spaces on the board that there are some pretty simple rules that govern how that space is supposed to work within the game, but we kind of play fast and loose with those rules at our house. I don't know about you guys, but that's kind of a, uh, let's either, depending on who's winning or who's the loudest, use this space to help us along in the game, and we can kind of make up some rules as we go along. Now, our tradition and my mom's here, she can uh, testify to this, is we slap 500 bills right in the middle to start the game, and then anytime you hit community chest or chance or pay taxes or anything, that goes in the middle, and then whoever is lucky enough to land on free parking gets the treasure. Um, That's kind of how we play, and again, depending how the game is going, that's how we try to stick to it. But, but we all like the idea of playing by the house rules, right? I mean, that sounds good to us. And that is what we see when Jesus talks about relaxing, teaching and obedience of the law of the prophets. That's what he's kind of referring to. The scribes and Pharisees really did play fast and loose they, they changed the terms and conditions of obedience to fit the societal norms and the, and the traditions that they had grown up in and were taught. Uh, they gave strict guidelines where it suited them. They gave more broad interpretation of the law where it became too stuffy. So this is the, the error of the scribes and Pharisees, but I would argue that this isn't something that's foreign, foreign to any of us in, in our day and time. Uh, in fact, I would argue that every world religion, every worldview preaches this idea that you can kind of make it up as you go. Um, Ecclesiastes 1.9, I love the book of Ecclesiastes, but in, in Uh, chapter 1 verses verse 9 it says what has been is what will be and what has been done is what will be done and there is nothing new under the sun so we see I mean we keep spinning this same yarn over and over I think we'd all agree that something is kind of off about the human condition, our experience in this world. Something's wrong. There's injustice, there's suffering, there's destruction, there's all kinds of things. And we do uh, generally believe that something needs to be corrected. And to be honest, uh, if every one of us, whether we'd like to admit it or not, 
we kind of go throughout our day-to-day and live life as if there is some higher good that we can achieve. And most of the time we do that by trying to put ourselves in the right circumstances or uh, put ourselves in the best position to do good things and to be a good person. In fact, this is probably one of the biggest fallacies of a lot of false teachers, even in Christendom and in, in Christianity. So in this sermon series that we've called Conversion, we've been talking about how Jesus' Sermon on the Mount takes the teachings of the scribes and Pharisees and really the teachings and and the, the, the application of all of us and he completely flips it upside down. That's why the crowds at the end of this sermon are blown away by what Jesus is teaching them. The, the error of the scribes and, and Pharisees, and really all of us, is, is in verse 19, it says, we have relaxed the teaching and obedience of God's law. This reduces God to be less than holy than he is. He's the lawgiver. He's the standard by which we are measured against. And it deceives us into believing that we can earn our right standing before God somehow. So we're very good at justifying and allowing our behavior when it suits us. And, and we're very good at convincing ourselves that God's word says what we want it to say rather than what it actually says. But we see here, God is holy. He is righteous. And we'll talk about this. His wrath burns against disobedience to his word. He requires, in verse 20, a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. So in our series, Conversion, we're looking at how Jesus' righteousness is the only righteousness that can satisfy God's eternal justice demand. And that totally redefines our existence under his righteousness. So here... In this section of the Sermon on the Mount that we're in, Jesus sets right our thinking about true righteousness, about true obedience to God's law. And he never excuses or relaxes God's righteous command in any way. He never excuses our obedience. And he doesn't add to or take away from God's word. No, in fact, in verses 17 and 18, Jesus teaches and obeys every iota and dot of the law. And in our text today, we see that conversion from adultery into a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and Pharisees, that exceeds our abilities to perform in some way, is only possible to the one who rightly teaches and obeys God's command, and that is Jesus. So, Jesus, we're going to spend our time this morning kind of uh, looking at these verses through that lens, how Jesus rightly teaches us God's law and how he gives us imperatives to obey God's law. We're going to look at teaching and obeying rightly the word of God. In verses 27 and 28, Jesus says, 
You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And as Brandon kind of talked about last week, he's referencing again the scribes and Pharisees teaching. He doesn't say it is written. He says, you have heard it said. And he rightly affirms it. It's, they are accurately teaching that part of the law. But then he goes on to say, but I say to you, because he is correcting what they have taught the people. And he rightly affirms what God's word says, and he rightly teaches us. Jesus exposes the lie that sin originates or is confined in some way to our behavior, to our actions. He dispels the notion that if we clean up our behavior, that sin is no longer an issue for us. But we see in Romans 5, verse 12, Paul teaches us that we are all born into sin. Sin originates in our hearts. And this is what Jesus is teaching us here. It is in the core of our being, who we are. So we see that God's law isn't a checklist as the scribes and Pharisees would have liked it to have been, and even us to some extent. But the law is a gift of grace that God has given to us to reveal our sinfulness and to reveal our need to be saved from sin. Romans 3.23 tells us that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and we have rejected wholesale his word. The scribes and Pharisees had taken the holiness of God's law and reduced it to religious performance. And that religious performance has no power to make us right before God. In speaking this truth to us about lust, Jesus shifts the relaxed teaching of conversion being possible through our strengths and efforts and abilities, and he speaks to the need of conversion in our hearts, the core of who we are. And guess what? He clarifies that righteousness that saves a life is a righteousness that exceeds our ability. We can't accomplish it. That's the first law we see, the first truth we see about God's law. The second truth that we see is complete obedience to God's law is necessary for righteousness. If we look at verses 29 through 30, it says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. I think this is a great opportunity and point to, take, to remind ourselves of the free parking. That sounds much better than this, right? That sounds, I mean, can't we just let bygones be bygones, Jesus? We, we get it. We did something bad, but we'll be better and we'll do our best. I like the idea of making up our rules as we go along. I like to think that I know what's best for me and I know what's right for my life. And I think if we're really honest with ourselves, we would probably accuse Jesus of being a little extreme here. But I think he uses 
exaggerated speech in these verses to emphasize the importance and seriousness of obedience to God's word. So, so what point is he making? Well, one commentator says that the general meaning, however difficult or severe or troublesome obedience to God's command may be, we shouldn't offer that as an excuse for our sin. No, the justice of God ought to stand higher in our estimation than all that we consider precious and valuable. Literally, our physical well-being is what Jesus is talking about. This commentator goes on to say that we, uh, this is so important because we tend to give ourselves way too much liberty in this area. So let me ask you a couple of questions. How do you judge your righteous and unrighteous behavior? By what standard do you use? Have you convinced yourself that your sin isn't all that bad? Let me get a little personal as it relates to lust. Where are you letting the passions of your sexual desire control your thoughts, actions, and affections? Jesus teaches us here that sin is appealing. That's what temptation means. It's, it's tempting. But it's not something we are to entertain. Notice the extreme language he uses here. Cut out your eyes. Cut off your hands. This is not something we have any business trying to manage. This is not something we can hide. This is not something that should be taken lightly. No, sin is utter contempt for God. It is a total rejection of his word and his goodness. That's what sin is. Sin is disregard to God's authority and it is rebellion against him. Sin separates us from the life that God created, the life that God sustains, and the life that God has offered us. Sin is utter hatred for God's word. So do not fool yourself into thinking that God thinks lightly of our sin. By Jesus' actions, we should never assume that. He took upon himself the full weight of God's wrath against sin on the cross, and he died so that we could have life. Do not ever conflate God's patience with our sin as apathy. No, in fact, 2 Peter 3 teaches us that God's patience towards us is salvation. It's a grace to us so that we would come to know him. God is just and faithful to his word. His desire for you, it has been and it always will be obedience to God's word. God knows that in our obedience to his word is where we find life and life abundant. Through Jesus, we find true righteousness. And Jesus beckons us to consider righteous obedience as anything, as greater than anything that we can imagine, anything we can indulge in, anything that we possess, our own, like I said, physical well-being, anything that we hold dear. 
Obedience to God's word is greater than that. In fact, obedience is the amen of our belief in Jesus. It's the testimony of conversion in our hearts. It's not something we obey God to to get something. It's evidence that God has done something in our lives. That's what we mean when we talk about conversion. The third truth we see in this passage of scripture is deliverance is only possible through true righteousness. We need to talk about God's wrath against sin. Jesus here teaches us about the reality of God's judgment against sin. God allows those who want nothing to do with him to experience his ultimate judgment against sin and to enter into eternal separation from him in hell. That's what our text tells us this morning. So as we understand salvation and deliverance from sin, it's not about providing you with a good day, a good week, a good life. It can do that. But Jesus is teaching us here that deliverance from sin, salvation from sin, is ultimately a rescue from eternity apart from God. All the goodness that we long for, all the hope that we manifest in ourselves, all the satisfaction and rest that we crave, all the meaning we're looking for, All of life is found in fellowship with God. In the Gospel of Luke in chapter 16, Jesus also teaches us there that between rest and satisfaction with God, between that and the torment and anguish of an eternal uh, separation from God in hell, (laughs) is a great chasm that cannot be crossed. So Jesus is using extreme language here uh, to teach us about his deliverance for a couple reasons. To one, warn us about the realities of hell, of, of God's ultimate judgment against sin. But he's also doing it to remind us of his great love for us in coming to us to save us to convert us, to turn us away from that reality into a good reality with God. So our natural inclination to wander from God, it grieves God to his core and it moves him to act on our behalf. You see this all throughout scripture. Read the first couple of chapters of Exodus. It's a great picture of that. But we see it too as Jesus took on flesh and came to be among us to save us, to rightly teach us God's word and to obey. Let us never relax in any way our attitudes on hell, the the eternal reality of separation from God. Let us not abate the grave punishment due our sin. When we relax God's word, we reduce both the seriousness of sin and the hopelessness of its eternal consequence. And we see 
deliverance from hell into the presence of God is the hope of conversion. So Jesus has rightly taught us God's word, but he also gives us three imperatives to obey God's word. And before we move too quickly, Jesus does speak of a specific sin, the sin of lust and adultery. A few important notes. Um, We don't know anything about the man that Jesus is talking about in this passage of Scripture, nor should we. It's just a a teaching tool. Um, But it's important to note that we don't know if this man is married or single. We don't know if he's young or old. We don't know where he's going. We don't know where he's been in his life. We don't know his ethnicity or his socioeconomic status. We don't know anything about him, and I think this is intentional. Again, it's a teaching tool. Every single one of us is susceptible to lust in our hearts, regardless of where we find ourselves in life. Lust arises in our hearts when we long for pleasure and satisfaction at the expense of obedience to Jesus. <laughs> Lust degrades our brothers and sisters, our fellow image bearers of God to be mere objects that are to be used for our selfish desires and satisfaction. So as Brandon talked about last week with anger and murder, the same applies to lust. Lust leaves no room in our hearts for a love for God because we have disobeyed his commands and it leaves no room in our heart for love for others. And if you remember Jesus' teaching on the greatest commandments, these are the whole law and the prophets, to love God, to love others. And lust robs us of both of those things. He rightly teaches us that lust begins in our hearts through the weakness of our flesh. So we can assume that the scribes and Pharisees had relaxed their teaching on adultery and limited it to certain people committing certain acts. No, Jesus here teaches and affirms God's covenant relationship of marriage And he upholds the purity of the marriage bed that you learn about in Hebrews chapter 13. God's word establishes that that covenant relationship. And the sin of lust, regardless of who we are, is adultery. Sexual immorality, first and foremost, defiles our relationship with our creator, with God. It also defiles the only relationship that we see in Scripture that Paul teaches us is a representation of the relationship that God has with his people. This is in Ephesians 5. This may sound countercultural to where we are, but we would be wise to consider Jesus' teaching as it relates to our sexual desire and our sexual expression and not hold a relaxed view of his holiness and our sinfulness. Sexual drive 
sexual attraction, sexual proclivity is so strong and so ingrained in who we are as image bearers of God. Remember, that's the first command he gives us is to be fruitful and multiply. It's a good thing. But it is also so strong that we are easily tempted to completely justify our actions and completely relax the teaching of God's word and sacrifice our obedience to him. But here, in these verses, God doesn't leave us with that option. And he also doesn't leave us without help. That being established, let's see how Jesus implores us to rightly obey God for us. The first imperative we see is to own our sin. If your right eye causes you to sin, or if your right hand causes you to sin, your sin, our sin, my sin, is my own. It is an affront to God who is holy and just. King David echoes this in Psalm 51. He says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, that's God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Our first inclination when we are confronted by our sin is not to own it and confess it. Our first inclination is to hide our shame or try to, to to look to blame others, to justify ourselves before God. But Jesus is confronting the heart of the matter by exposing our hearts as the genesis of our sin. No one else is to blame for what goes on in your heart. No one else is to blame for what you allow into your heart. And you will be held accountable for your sin against God. I will be held accountable for my sin against God. Jesus, in teaching us rightly about God's word, has already said there will come a day when the final judgment of God is pronounced against sin. And he tells us now, accept the responsibility for your sin against God in teaching us to obey. Conversion from adultery to righteousness begins by us owning our sin by agreeing, as as the psalmist did, King David, that we have done evil in the sight of the Lord and we deserve his judgment. The second imperative Jesus gives us to rightly obey God is to repent of our sin. I want to uh, direct you back to our text this morning. And again, emphasize the extreme language that Jesus uses in these passages. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Throw it away. Let me ask you, how do you view repentance? What do you understand it to be? Repentance from sin is not a bad feeling you get when you do something wrong. Repentance from sin is not feeling sorry that you've done something bad. 
Repentance for sin isn't even just asking someone to forgive you for, for a wrong you've committed against them. Jesus is teaching us here that repentance from sin will be extremely difficult. That it's a sacrifice to repent of sin and seek after a greater righteousness. Jesus here, in speaking about physical maiming, that's what he's saying, uses strong language to teach us that repentance is a strong, life-altering commitment and conviction to obey God's word. There is no sacrifice too great, what is what Jesus is telling us here, that is not worth obedience to God's word. Anything we might gain from momentary pleasure with our eyes and with our hands is not worth sacrificing the fellowship that we have for God. That's what Jesus is telling us. And he's saying to do away completely with that. When we repent of sin, we give it no opportunity to have dominion in our lives. And this isn't an easy thing. This is a daily struggle. In fact, 1 Peter 2 tells us that this is a war within our hearts that is raged against the passions of our flesh. And I think it's important at this point to address what we see in this world. Lust, adultery, Sexual immorality, sexual idolatry are a constant reality in this world. I dare say you'd be hard-pressed to find anyone for, for whom this hasn't been a struggle, that, for whom it hasn't, isn't a current struggle, or that will struggle with it at some point. Some of you know this struggle all too well. Some of you need help. Some of you need help with what you see with your eyes. Some of you need help with what you practice in private. And let me encourage you, as Jesus does here, do not let pornography or any kind of sexual voyeurism have any presence in your life. And know that God has not left you to fend for yourself. There is much forgiveness that is needed when it comes to lust. But we have a gracious Savior who offers much forgiveness. Repentance from sin will be a constant struggle. But it will also be an eternally rewarding gift that God has for you. Repentance is the sanctifying work of conversion. The third imperative Jesus gives us to rightly obey God is to accept deliverance through faith in the one who rightly teaches and obeys the law. That's Jesus. Again, he speaks of deliverance in these passages. So an appropriate question you may be asking is how can we not lust even if we're out of eyes and hands you can't it's what Jesus is telling us 
in and of ourselves, we do not have the ability to perform any kind of righteous sacrifice that will satisfy God's just demand against sin. That's why conversion in Christ is essential for us. No testimony of righteousness, no testimony of obedience, no testimony of deliverance ever begins with us giving more effort. If you're like me, you know how giving more effort usually ends. <laughs> with failure. Or, well, we'll give it another whirl next week. No. We will not accomplish any kind of righteousness before God through any strength or ability we possess. In fact, Jesus, when he talks about <laughs> deliverance, only offers us one hope. To realize the helpless state that we are in. And like the tax collector in Luke chapter 18, to plead with God for mercy and deliverance. And Jesus is the one who holds and administers true righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, that exceeds our abilities. A couple of weeks ago at the beginning of our series on conversion, Tyler read from 2 Corinthians 5 verses, uh, verse 21. It's one of my favorites and I wanted to share it here. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is the only one who can. Jesus is the only one who has. And Jesus is the only one who will fulfill the righteous demand of God's justice and he stands ready to deliver you and cover you with his righteousness he sends his Holy Spirit to empower us to give us new life so that we can obey his word conversion from adultery into righteousness is only possible through Jesus who is the only one who can give true righteousness. So Jesus rightly teaches us about lust and adultery here. And we also see in the book of Hosea in the Old Testament, God prophesies of the Messiah. He prophesies about Jesus and he presents Jesus as a faithful groom to his bride. And the bride of Christ, her people, that's us. Salvation and deliverance from sin is not in how well the bride acts. It's in, it originates in God's love for his people. Friends, know that God loves you fiercely. And he pursues you whether you know it or not, whether you acknowledge that fact. He pursues you in love even when you feel ashamed of that. He pursues you in love whether you feel worthy of that. And he knows you are incapable of helping yourself, but he loves you too much to leave you there, to leave you helpless. He comes for you. That's the good news that we have in Jesus. 
So not only does conversion begin with God's love, with Jesus's love for his bride, but we see in Ephesians 5, when we talk about obedience, that Jesus sanctifies his bride through the washing of the water with the word. Trust God's word for your life. Be consumed by God's word in your life. When lustful temptations come, repent, flee, run to Jesus. I would encourage you to, if you are struggling in this, to surround yourself with faithful brothers and sisters who won't relax the teaching of God's word for your comfort or for your circumstance, but will encourage you and will petition the Lord with you to persevere and to seek his deliverance. I want to make an appeal to wives. Pray for your husbands in this. I, I don't mean to suggest that, that women are exempt from lusting in their hearts, but I do believe Jesus teaches us the way he does for a reason. So wives, plead with God that he would deliver your husband from this. Husbands, I have an appeal for you too. Ask your wives to pray for you in this. Humble yourselves. The destruction that you are entering into when you allow lust to have any kind of presence in your life, you cannot fathom or understand in the moment. Humble yourselves. Ask your wives to pray for you in this. Revelations 19 tells us that the greatest good of God's people, the bride, is the future glory revealed at the marriage to the groom, the faithful groom, where the, the, the struggles that we have with sin, where the, the day-to-day failings that we have, where the longings of our heart are finally and ultimately satisfied in the presence of a good and gracious Savior. We will no longer see as through a mirror dimly. The shroud of sin will be no more. And friends, this is greater than any momentary pleasure we can experience in this life. Jesus is the faithful groom who alone can bring about conversion in your life from sin and death to righteousness and life. Will you trust him? Will you seek him? Will you believe him? Let's pray.